Boker Tov. Shalom, shalom. It's again a privilege for me to be here to share his wonderful word. You know, this morning we're going to look at what I consider one of the most passionate and also intricate study in the scriptures, that is prophecies, eschatology. While the study of eschatology represents over one quarter of the whole scriptures, some say even a third, it is spread out uh, in almost every one of the 66 books of the scriptures, so that one needs to gather this precious information by digging everywhere in order to make sense of the whole. And our subject for the next 50 minutes or so will bring us throughout most of the Bible, especially through the 16 writing prophets, to the words of our Lord in the Gospel, through many of the epistles in the book of Revelation, without to the book of Revelation, without forgetting verses scattered in the Torah and in the writings. So to begin with, and to encourage you, uh, you know, with all that you heard so far, and to, to encourage you to further these studies in the future, I will begin by presenting two important verses when faced with such a vast subject. Usually I use these verses also at Bible school when I teach the students. I start with this one. The first one is the, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 55, which is the chapter of an invitation to evangelism and to encourage the Israelites and us to stay within the word of God in order to benefit the uh, blessings from God. And there in verse 10 and 11, it says, for, God says, For as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So, so shall my word be that goeth forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the things which I send it. My word shall not come back in vain. This is God's promise. This verse speaks of the power of the word of God and the way it works in us. Here the word of God is like the rain or the snow that watered the earth and helped it give abundant vegetation. And notice that it takes time from the moment the water enters the earth and the fruits that are produced. I truly believe that whatever we learn from the word, whether we fully understand it now, right away or not. And if we persist in our daily study of the scriptures, right, it will have effect. The second passage is as powerful. It is in the Gospel of John. Jesus was preparing his disciple for his departure. And he says in John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I have said to you. What this verse is saying is that the Spirit of God will bring to our memory things that we have learned. But see what Jesus says, things that I've said to you. In order for this to happen, we have to have put the time to, have a, and to read them and to study them and to have this fellowship with him. So these things tells us that whatever biblical passages you have learned now, the Spirit of God will at some point bring it back to you at the proper time. And I'm sure that many of you can testify to the fact that sometimes verses just pop up in your mind when you evangelize or when you teach. So this study this morning is divided into four short sections. Uh, we're going to further look into the tribulation and see how rabbinical commentaries, ancient and modern ones, consider this time. You know, they're aware of it. They're aware of these verses. Then we'll continue to look into Daniel chapter 9, which will help us to see the tribulation in the context of the first century. Did you know that they knew so much about Daniel in that first century? Third, we will look, take a brief look at Ezekiel chapter 38, 39. This time, it, this time that is of war represents for them, for the rabbinical people, the final hours before the establishment of the Messianic times and the coming of the Messiah. And many, even today in Israel, speak about this passage. What do they understand about it? And for we'll see that while this time will be a time of wars and great conflicts, it will also be a time of the greatest revival of history, right? The tribulation will be a time of the greatest revival of history. As Paul said in Romans chapter 5, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. This is a major aspect, I believe, of the tribulation we often forget to mention, and one we ought to keep in mind, because the best is yet to come. 
Now let us begin to explore this period of time. In the Hebrew scriptures, the term used for the tribulation is the day of the Lord. It is mentioned about 80 times in the Hebrew scriptures. While this term, when used for the northern Israel, okay, it speaks of the Assyrian invasion. And when it spoke of Judah, it spoke of the Babylonian diaspora. Many times we will find that the description of the day of the Lord far exceed the local wars and speak in apocalyptic turn, and is succeeded by the establishment of the millennium. Right? It is considered the last wars before the coming of the Messiah in rabbinical Judaism, just like we have said. So the concept of the day of the Lord itself derives from the ancient Near East, where conquering kings would sometimes boast that they were able to consummate a campaign in a single day. So the scripture uses the same term of the coming of the Lord. As for the word tribulation, you know, the term used in the New Testament, flipsis, in biblical and secular Greek, this word means to afflict, to distress. It is from the root meaning to press, to bruise, and to squash. This gives us a pretty good idea of the nature of the tribulation time. It's a time of judgment. Our English word tribulation is very descriptive. It comes from the Latin word tribulum, which means a threshing sledge. The ancient farmers would use the tribulum to beat the head of the grain, separating the chaff from the wheat. Tribulation, therefore, is a judgment designed to separate the chaff from the wheat. This threshing is done after the harvest, where the grains were brought to the threshing floor and they were threshed or, or repeatedly beaten until the inner softened part of the seed was separated from the hard layer and also from the chaff that covered it. Then at the end of the day, when the wind rose, they, they, they took the seed and threw it in the air so that the wind will separate the last chaff from the grain, right? The wheat from the tear, so to speak. This is when the chaff is separated from the grain. And the same process of threshing and winnowing is the picture that is used to show how Jesus will come at the end to sort out the church. In Luke chapter 3, verse 17, we read his winnowing fan in his hand, and he will thoroughly cleanse out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. When the Lord will come, he will separate the good seed from the chaff, the wheat again from the tear. And so, while we look at these things, we remember that Jesus took all this suffering for us so that we do not need to go through this threshing. We do not need to go through this, through this tribulation. Now, let us remember that the temple itself was built on a threshing floor. David bought it from a Jebusite, the temple where all the sacrifices were, f were performed, were a constant reminder of the judgment of sin, something that Yeshua took for himself, right? Yeshua, which means in Hebrew, salvation. What then is the purpose of the final period of the tribulation and how is it described by the prophets? The first great purpose of the day of the Lord is to prepare the nation of Israel for her Messiah. The prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7 makes it clear that this time that is coming has particular reference to Israel. It is called the time of Jacob's trouble. That's a heavy title we have here. The word trouble, tsara, is, one, is equivalent to, to tribulation. It means affliction, anguish, distress. But Israel will be saved out of it, it says. Another example is in the book of Joel, which theme is the day of the Lord. It says that the prophet here brings out the severity of the time. We read in Joel 1.15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Another book, Zephaniah. It hammers home the message of the day of the Lord as a day of final judgment. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, he says. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty man shall cry. Amos as well. At the time when Israel was flourishing, and the people were under the impression that the millennium was soon to be established, very much like it is today, by the way. He says, what to, to you if you desire the day of the Lord? 
For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. This is Amos 5.18. And above all these passages, when our Messiah spoke of the same period of time in the gospel, he said in Matthew 24, verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And he added, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh will be saved, for, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And then he spoke about his second coming. So this time is yet future. We, have, we need to realize this, I believe, and we need to warn the people around about this time that is coming. It is a time, by the way, like Yeshua says, that cannot be compared to, with anything in history. And Jesus promises that once it occurs, there will be nothing like it anymore. And then he comes. And here in these verses, Yeshua sums up the concept of the tribulation time in the Hebrew scriptures. And there he even quoted, by the way, these words are taken from Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And Joel chapter 2, verse 2, who said the same thing. But the day of the Lord is not confined to Israel and the Jews only. The second great purpose of the tribulation is to pour judgment on unbelieving men and nations, Jews and Gentiles. In the Hebrew scriptures, the prophets include the whole world. For instance, God said through Jeremiah, chapter 25, verse 32 to 33. It says, Behold, disaster shall come forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the furthest part of the earth. And that day the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth until to the other end of the earth. In this chapter, in this chapter is followed by a pleading. God is pleading with people, pleading where God asks the reader to consider these words and to repent. In fact, this is why we have these severe words throughout the scriptures. In the New Testament, we find at the end the nations of the earth being deceived by a false teaching of the, it's called the harlot system of revelation. We have followed the, they have followed the false prophet in the worship of the beast. This we can see it in Revelation chapter 13, 17, 18. For the godless of the nation must also be judged. And one reason of the severity of this time is given in Revelation 12, 12. For the devil has come down, it says, to you having great wrath. Because he knows that he has a short time. Like our Lord says in Matthew, there was never a time like this, nor there will be. It is a time that will come only once, and it's still future. And when I read all these things, I want to say to you, I praise God that I believe in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. This is the idea. This is why we have to tell the people. Why are we here on earth as believers? Our home is in heaven. We are here to tell the people about these times that are coming. We are here to do something we cannot do in heaven. That is to preach the word to the unsaved. There are no sinners in heaven. And people, and today people do not need these prophecies to realize that man cannot bring peace on earth. We come to the point, and even secular news, they tell you, no, there's some kind of word are coming. I read that a former president of the Norwegian Academy of Sciences and historians from England, Egypt, Germany, and India have come up with some startling information concerning peace in this world. They all concluded that since 3600 BC, the world has known only 292 years of peace. That means that in 5600 years, there was only 292 years of peace. That is about 5% of the time. Furthermore, during this period, there have been 14,300 wars, large and small, in which 3.64 billion people have been killed. Don't we need Jesus when you hear these things? And since 650 BC, there have also been 1,656 armed races, only 16 of which have not ended in war. Okay, the remainder ended in economic collapse of the countries involved. History does not lie. How can some believe that man can achieve peace on earth? Ancient rabbinical commentators and even the Talmud also speak of a dire time before the coming of the Messiah. This is something that the Jews need to know about their, their own sages. In the Talmud, they call it the pangs of the messianic 
period. In one passage, we read that one rabbi speaks uh, of the Messiah and says, let him come, but may I not see him, it says. And another came and said the same thing. Let him come, and I wish he w- I would not see him because I do not want to be in these times. And so they said, because it is the turmoil of the Messiah. And we ask, how is it that in modern Judaism, they say we want Mashiach now, right? They have these things. You know, in, in Montreal, we have many billboards, you know, with a picture of a rabbi who died 15 years ago or so, and whom they proclaim to be the Messiah. And you know that at his tomb right now, they have people with a cell phone in case he resurrects, they want to text everyone else, right? <laughs> But, but, of course, you know, when you speak of rabbinical Judaism, you, there's no system of theology in rabbinical Judaism, right? Different rabbis will believe different things. But this is what today they believe. They believe that the Messiah will come and will bring peace on earth. But don't they realize that's going to be wars? The turmoils of the Messiah come before? Now let us now turn one more time to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, if you have your scriptures with you, who will give us the duration of the time of the tribulation and will situate this prophecy in the context of the first century and in the context of all the prophecies. Starting with verse 24, this section is like a hub around which many prophecies revolved. So what brought about this prophecy? Uh, We are at the end of the Babylonian diaspora, which lasted 70 years. So the Jewish people expected the return of the land of Israel, and they even expected the messianic times. And so we read in verse 2 of this chapter, In the first year of the reign of Darius, I, Daniel, understood by the books of the, the number of the years specified by the words of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Now notice something. See that Daniel interprets the Bible prophecies literally. 70 is 70. And this is how we ought to interpret Bible prophecies as well. And so knowing it is the end of this period, he begins to pray, confessing his and the sins of the nation in preparation of the return. Just like Moses and Solomon prophesied the Jews will do once they were, they will be in the diaspora. However, this is when Gabriel the angel, the same who later came to Joseph and Mary, told them that the Messiah will not come right away, but for another 490 years. In the prophecy, he divided these 490 years into different sections of time, from the first coming to the second coming of Jesus, as you have in the chart. In the first two periods, totaling 483 years, Daniel speaks of the first coming. He tells us that the Messiah will come and die. You know, I tell you the word that he uses in verse 26 when he says that the Messiah will be cut off is the Hebrew kara, right? Which means to cut in pieces with a sharp, to kill somebody with a sharp object. It is the same word that is used in Psalm 22:16. they shall pierce my hand and my feet. It is clear that the Old Testament, that the Hebrew scriptures speak of the death of the Messiah before he comes. And here we have the manner of the death of the Messiah prophesied by David a thousand years before Jesus came. This is significant because today in modern Judaism, they forgot these prophecies. You know, a year ago or so, I was invited to speak at a prominent synagogue in Montreal. The first question, by the way, they ask me many questions, but the first question they ask is, if Jesus is the Messiah, how come we don't have peace on earth? I reminded them that the scripture speaks of the two comings of the same Messiah. I said, what do you do of the other at least hundred prophecies that we have in the Hebrew scriptures? I read to them Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, okay, which speak of the suffering and death of the Jewish Messiah. But I also reminded them that even in their own holy books, the Talmud, many rabbis have seen and understood that the Messiah comes to die for the sins of the people. The Targum on the book of Isaiah speaks, here is my servant, the Messiah, and here you have Isaiah 53. The problem is that the theology of rabbinical Judaism are not based on the word of God, unfortunately. And Yeshua told the religious leaders in John 5, 46, if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me. 
Because when Jesus came in the first century, he encountered a completely new religion. And so he tried to bring them back to the Word of God. If you believe in Moses, if you believe in the Word of God, you would see me absolutely in there. Many times they say that I changed my religion. And I say, no, I did not change my religion. I went back to the root of my religion. I consider rabbinical Judaism as a foreign religion to Judaism, biblical Judaism itself. Now let us concentrate on the last seven years, which represents the time of the tribulation. Daniel tells us that at which point it will start. Verse 27, you can see in your scriptures. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Here the Hebrew word speaks of weeks, of years. The verse speaks of a leader who will sign a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. And in the middle of these seven years, after three and a half years, he will declare himself the enemies of the Jews. And the great persecution and wars will follow. The last three and a half years are those described in, throughout the book of Revelation, at times of war. John uses the same Hebrew calendar and speaks of 1260 days, of 42 months, which corresponds exactly to three and a half years. In Revelation 13.5, John says that authority will be given to the Antichrist for 42 months. Hebrew calendar is 30 days per month. And so 42 months is three and a half years. Revelation 11:2, John speaks of the measurements of the third temple and adds that beginning with the last three and a half years, they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Then in Revelation 12:6, we're told that the woman, Israel, the believing remnant of the Jewish people during this period of time will be brought into the wilderness, which we understand in the Hebrew scriptures of being Petra, right, for 1260 days. And furthermore, we read in Revelation 11.3 of the two witnesses present during this time in Jerusalem to whom was given so much power, because I believe that all the demons will be there at the time, right, around the world. And so, it says that they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So the tribulation time begins with the Antichrist confirming a seven-year treaty with the Jewish people. And Jesus made an allusion to this covenant. He said in John 5:43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. This other is the world leader that is coming in the world scene, scene, that is, and I believe he's coming very soon. And other prophets also spoke of this covenant. Isaiah, you know how he calls his covenant? And twice, covenant with death. Covenant with death. Isaiah 28, 15 and verse 18. This gives us a sense of the severity of the time. They will believe in this Antichrist and this false prophet who will pretend to be their Messiah, and they will believe in them so much that they will think that this is it. The messianic time had come. It would be a false belief. Now, Jesus in the Gospel also speaks of the beginning of the second part of the tribulation in Matthew 24, 15. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place wherever reads let him understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains get out of Israel it says what is the abomination of desolation we have seen this in the previous study the abomination of desolation must be the highest point of rebellion the apex of pride the pinnacle if you want of arrogance it is the counterpart of the sin against the Holy Spirit we can see it this way but for all nations of the world at this time. And the word abomination in Hebrew denotes what is idolatry, the worship of other gods. It describes mediums and spiritists, uh, all that God abhors. This you can see in Deuteronomy 19. Here the abomination of desolation gathers all the evil mentions from the beginning of Matthew 24. False prophets, persecution, lawlessness, all leading to the paroxysm of pride found in its representative, the Antichrist. The term itself occurs three times in the book of Daniel. 
And at first he describes the time when Antiochus Epiphanes entered the temple of God. And you know what he did? He sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. This was the greatest sign of rebellion, desecration of the holy. And Jesus takes the same prophecy and reverse, re, refers it to a much higher and global desecration of the holy. That is when the Antichrist will set up his image and proclaim himself as God. Cannot get worse to this. Paul gives us more, some more information of the abomination of desolation in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, For that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the falling comes first. And the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. The same title they gave to Judas Iscariot, son of perdition. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worshipped. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. While Jesus and Daniel tells us that the Antichrist will stop the offerings of the temple, Paul tells us that this is the man of sin will himself sit as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That is the last sin, the last drop, if you want, which will bring Jesus down. This is what it means by the abomination of desolation that is yet to come. And the Apostle John adds one more information. He calls him actually the Antichrist. This is where we get our term. In 1 John 2, 18, he says, children, and he speaks to us. It is the last hour. And just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. This is the sequel and the last link of Satan's sin, the first sin ever when he wanted to ascend into heaven, if you remember in Isaiah 14, 13, to ascend into heaven and exalt his throne above God. But he could not do it in heaven, so he tries on earth by sending this man, whom Paul calls the son of perdition, an imitation of the son of God. And so the believers of the time are warned to look for the abomination of desolation when it occurs. It will also trigger the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the most terrible times of it all. This is when Jesus tells the people, get out of Judea, get out of Jerusalem, right? Isn't it interesting that many today make it their ministry to send Jews back to the land of Israel under the false premise that the more Jews in the land and the faster the Messiah will come. But they don't tell them what Jesus just said. It's okay for any Jews or anyone to go to Jerusalem if they want to live there. But they have to be aware of the coming wars. Let's again consider the rebuilding of the temple itself. In the passage that I quoted, Daniel 9, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians, right, and Revelation 11, all three, okay, require or tell us that a, a temple is required for the end time prophecies to come about. And today, in Israel, it is slowly becoming a national reality. For instance, on Tuesday, February the 18th, 2020, Israel Defense Minister Naftali Bennett Last one, he insisted that there, there are, we are in the days of the third temple. This is what he said, right? And that the modern state of Israel is very much a part of the prophesied global redemption. Because they believe once we bring the Messiah comes back, the temple will be built and redemption will go into the other nations. And he says, this is it. We heard of this movement in Israel that works very hard to have the temple rebuilt. So far they have all that is necessary of the temple except the building itself, which they say they can do it in less than six months. They speak, okay, they speak of these two Talmudic schools near the Wailing Wall and teaching students details of temple services. These young Levites are being right now trained in ancient rites of sacrifices. This is something we don't realize in North America we're often. Have you ever wondered how come the only recognizable tribe of Israel is that of Levi today? We don't know about the others. We only know about the Levites, right? Their identity never left the people of Israel for the past 2,000 years. They know who is from the tribe of Levi. And I believe God made sure they know for he knew, of course, he knew or he would tell them that the temple will be rebuilt, and so they would have all the Levites for, with them. 
And so this group in Israel have only recently felt the call to build it. They're called the Temple Mount Faithful, as we have seen before, founded in 1988. These have dedicated a three-ton cornerstone two kilometers from the temple site. Police prevented them from staging the ceremony in the Western Wall Plaza because of possible riots from the Palestinians. But the stone is there, waiting to be laid. Right now, the Jews are today banned by Israeli law from praying at the site. And those who visit are daily accosted by Muslims, such as the woman in black, who maintain a constant vigil on Jewish presence. Every time a Jew goes up there and prays, they put him out. Furthermore, the Islamic authorities officially denied a temple uh, that ever existed at this site. So... All that Jesus said was wrong, right? And once the temple is erected, I imagine that millions of Jews will immigrate to Israel. And the country will grow tremendously. Immigration is something that the Israeli government is working hard on, right? And so they want, actually. They're looking themselves recently for this possibility of building the temple. So how serious are the Jews about rebuilding the temple? They believe it strongly. It is in their daily prayer. It has been for the last 2,000 years. The last time we were in Israel, we noticed these signs at the entrance of the temple. See what the sign says. One of them, he says, some religious Jews consider this site so holy that they refuse to enter it. This one says, according to Torah law, Entering the Temple Mount area is strictly forbidden due to the holiness of this site. There's another sign, and even more powerful. It reads, Dear visitors, you are approaching the holy site of the Western Wall, where the divine presence always rests. This is what they believe. This is what the religious Jews believe. It is there where prophecy meets that is reality. And today we can see traces of this false optimism which tells us that Israel, Israel is ready for a peace treaty. We're starting this, this false optimism to see it. You know, less than three years ago, in July 2016, Benjamin Netanyahu counted only five countries in the world who are enemies of Israel. Even the author of the article seemed to be quite surprised. Five? That's all? But God says... Through Zechariah 14.2. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. The houses taken and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity and the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. This is yet to come. And this optimism and this conviction that the Messiah is coming soon to deliver them from their enemies paves the way for the Antichrist. All is needed today is one clever, charismatic, and powerful man to come to Israel and offer them a peace treaty, something they are so eager to have. And they will believe it. But this feeling of safety will not last beyond three and a half years, and then will come these last wars, and Israel will be in the middle of these wars. One last word on the prophecies of Daniel. They were not unknown in the times of Jesus. In fact, his prophecies had a great impact in the first century. This is when we see this, this first false Jewish Messiah. You know that they appeared at the same time as Jesus. Why? Because they knew how to read the word of God. But the religious leaders did not. Two of them actually are mentioned in the book of Acts chapter 5. Thudas and Judas the Galilean. They tried to liberate Israel from the hands of the Romans. Secular history also noticed a change in Israel at the time of the first century. This is how Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, explains this heated time in history, he says. Writing to the emperor Vespasian, who could not make sense of the upheaval in Israel at that time, with many false messiahs rising, Josephus refers him to the prophet Daniel. And he says, that which chiefly excited the Jews to war was an ambiguous prophecy, and he's referring to Daniel chapter 9, which was also found in the sacred books, that at the time someone within their country would, should arise, who would obtain the empire of the whole world. They knew how to read the book of Daniel.
Even Suetonius and Tacitus, first century Roman historians, both spoke of the first Jewish, of the Jewish belief of this coming Messiah. Suetonius wrote, there had spread over all the Orient and an and old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Even the high priest, if you remember, who condemned Jesus, knew so well the prophecies of Daniel. During his trial, the high priest asked Yeshua, he says in Matthew 26, 63, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus answered by quoting the book of Daniel. I say to you, he says, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of man. He's referring to Daniel 7.13. The high priest went crazy when he heard this. He tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. This is how well they knew the book of Daniel. Let us now take a brief look at another major prophecy of the end time, Gog and Magog. In the context of Ezekiel, this is the last war which will bring back the Messiah, who then will establish the kingdom. We have, in fact, the chronology of Ezekiel, you have it in the screen. In Ezekiel chapter 37, we have the return of Israel in unbelief. In unbelief, the spirit is not there yet. In chapter 38, 39, we have the final word leading to the second coming. And in chapter 40 to 48, we have the description of the temple of the messianic age. And Ezekiel 38, 8 situates us in time and history. It says, after many days you will be visited. In the latter days, you will come into the land of those who brought back the sword and gathered many nations on the mountain of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwells safely, right? By the way, the rabbis know about this. The first hint, by the way, we have here is after many days, and in latter days. It could not be the return of Israel during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, as it was explained in the previous study. But it will be a time where Israel will be independent, and like the times when they were under the Roman domination. And see that it was when Israel will be brought back from the nations of the world, not just Persia, not just Babylon, as it was in 1948, about 70 years ago, when it formed a new nation. At this time, Jews came from all over the world. It was completely new, right? A total of 850,000 Jews came from the Arab countries, from Poland, 106,000 Jews, from Bulgaria, 37 Jews. They started to form that body that is prophesied by Ezekiel. Today, there are about 6,700,000 Jews in Israel. However, less than half of those still in diaspora. We are now living these prophecies. Most Jews are in the diaspora. And notice what God says through Ezekiel. He gathers many nations on the mountain of Israel, which had long been desolate. When the Jews came to the land of Israel, it was not the way it is now. It was a desolate place, as the Bible says, Korban is the word used here, which describes ruins and wasted land, as if it has been destroyed, as it was. And when you go to Israel today, you see Tel Aviv, for instance. It was not like this when they came. Tel Aviv was only a beach with sand for kilometers around. Even today, 60% of Israel is desert land, yet this desert, you see miracles happen. When you drive, for instance, to the Negev and see Beersheba flourishing with palm trees and, col and colorful flowers, it was not like it was when the Jews were not there. Israel from the desert went to, from desert to flourishing garden, according to the prophecy. For rabbinical commentators, this war is the last. They don't have the book of Revelation. They don't have the New Testament. It is their equivalent of Armageddon in Revelation, which also brings about, of course, the second coming of the Messiah. What do they understand from Gog and Magog today? Do you remember what happened on May 5th, 2010, during the events with the flotilla, when a Turkish boat defiled the Israeli embargo and headed for the Gaza trip? strip, that is, which triggered a confrontation when Israeli soldiers boarded the ship. After this, after this, Turkey became, in my opinion, the second overtly anti-Semitic country in the world. 
Then, in May 5, 2010, Rabbinical Council of Judah and Samaria issued an unusual statement. They said that the result of this incident with the intercepted flotilla, and I quote, places us at the beginning of Gog and Magog, the Gog and Magog process, where the world is against us, but which ends with the third and final redemption. Right? They remembered this prophecy because for them, Gog and Magog is the last battle before the coming of the Messiah. They're aware of things that are happening against the world as the walls are closing in, as we're coming towards the very end. Let us briefly look at the three nations in Ezekiel because the rabbis have seen Russia, Turkey, and Iran as being spoken in, in, in Ezekiel chapter 3. This is how they understand it. So they have Magog, Meshel, Tubal, Tubal, that is, at the three sons of Japheth, found in the table of nation in Genesis 10. If you follow, by the way, the territory from there, you will find out that today they are occupying the same areas of modern-day Russia. Ezekiel also gives us the place where they are in relation to Israel. We read in Ezekiel 38.15 and 39.2 that they are out of the far north, not like Syria or Babylon, who also are said to be north. This is the utmost north. Can't go any higher. And I love the word, what it says in verse 16, you will come up against the people of Israel, when in fact they were going down south, as if God says, you are in the utmost north, but my land of Israel is higher than you, right? And history tells us that Meshach and Tubal were always together. The Assyrian text called them Mushki and Tubali. Herodotus, in the 5th century BC, a Greek historian, mentions Meshach and Tubal and identifies them with a people named the Samar Sarmatians and the Muscovites living in Asia Minor. And Pliny, the historian, another 1st century historian, confirms this and he says that the Scythians were in Magog, the Scythians being part of the fathers of Russia. As for Togarma, and this is how the Bible, that is the Rabbinical commentators understand. He says, Togarma mentioned in verse 6, geographically it was always been the land around Turkey and Armenia. And medieval tradition variously claimed Togarma as the mystical ancestor of the people of, of, that is, of Russia. They understood it to be Russia. As for Persia, mentioned in verse 5, today it is known as Iran. You know, before 1935, Iran was always known as Persia. It was then that the Iranian government asked other countries to address them by its Persian name, Iran, meaning the land of the Aryans. It was to mark its freedom from the grip of the British and the Russians. Both Iran and Persia speak of the same country. But isn't it strange that it is the only one of the group of ten that we find in Ezekiel we can identify without any doubts? Is it because it is the most outspoken of all the countries against Israel? And they are overtly anti-Semitic. For instance, in June of 2018, Iran's supreme leader, and I quote what he says, the Zionist regime will not last. All historical experiences imply with absolute certainty and doubtly the Zionist regime will perish in not so far future. I don't know which history he's, he read, by the way. In July 21, 2018, the top Iranian general had been reported saying that forces in Syria are awaiting orders to destroy Israel. He said that Tehran is creating might in Lebanon with Hezbollah, who has now 100,000 missiles aimed at Israel. Now it is open that they support Hezbollah. Hezbollah is the group whose sole reason, raison d'etre is the destruction of Israel. This is why they're, they're there. And to give you an idea of their identity, they have a machine gun on the logo of their flag. And the people, to show their deep and continuous hatred in the Iranian capital city of Tehran, they have a clock displaying the, a countdown to the days until the destruction of Israel. You have it in the screen, actually. Their supreme leader says that by 2040, there will no longer be a state of Israel. Here are three powerful nations against Israel. 
Iran, I want to tell you, is 70 times, 79 times bigger than Israel. It has 1.70 million kilometers square, while Israel has only 21,000 kilometers square. Turkey is 37 times bigger than Israel. And Russia is 17 million kilometers square, as opposed to 21,000 kilometers square. The miracle is not so much the survival of Israel as it is her enemy's persistence to want to kill it, to want to annihilate. By the way, can you spot Israel in there? You have actually to look very hard, right? We know that during the Six-Day Wars in 1967, they were there already. Russia was already there. Russia supplied Egypt and Syria with modern tanks, aircraft, and later missiles. The Egyptian and Syrian armed forces primarily used Russian weapons at this time and employed tactics, tactics developed by them. And after that, the Arab countries lost the war. The Russian rapidly made up the equipment you know, suffered by the Syrian and Egyptian and increased their involvement in Egypt with anti-aircraft defenses. It seems that they cannot wait for the war of Gog and Magog to come. Today, they support and supply Iran and Hezbollah you know that on February 2019, that was not long ago, the president of Iran, Russia, and Turkey met to discuss Syria, and it is believed that this was the summit that marked the increased convergence of national interests between these three regional powers. They should have met to study, actually, Ezekiel 38, 39. They would have not been smiling, okay, like they do. At this time, Russia, by the way, has two military bases in Syria right next to Israel, and is recognized as an, an authority in that region. The Times of Israel in December 17, 2019, Russia, it says, to modernize Syrian port. It built railway across Syria and Iraq. Back in November 9, 2017, according to Haaretz newspaper, Israel asked Russia for a 60 kilometers buffer zone from the border of the Golan to keep Iranian and Syrian army far enough, which are now right there. And Russia said no, only five kilometer buffer zone. Are we aware of what's happening over there? How the prophecies meet reality, how prophecies meet the news over there? And modern rabbis make this connection between Russia and Ezekiel. They do see them coming and they say this is the war of Magog and Magog. And one last word about these rabbis in Israel today. You know that on Thursday, February the 20, 2020, it was Shlomo Amar, the former Sephardic rabbi in Israel, and he said, I want to quote what he said. He said, all the great rabbis in this generation are saying that the Messiah is about to reveal himself. All the signs the prophets gave, all the signs predicted in the Gemara, the Mishnah, the Midrash, everything is taking place one by one. All we need is to remain strong for a little bit longer. They see it. They know it. We know it as well. We have the Word of God. We have the New Testament itself. And see that while they, they, they do not have the New Testament, they feel the imminent coming of the Messiah. How much more should we? Now, as Jesus kept the best wine for the end, so is this last part we're about to look into. One major characteristic of the tribulation time is that then will occur the greatest revival of history. Okay, this, this, this is, I believe, a major thing in there. When God punishes, he does for a short time. We have seen that the wrath of God during the tribulation lasts, what, really three and a half years, right? For he keeps covenant and mercy for, but he keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandment. Do you see the, the distinction? That the gospel will go all over the world during the tribulation time is something that was prophesied in many places in the scriptures. And the first is from Jesus himself in Matthew 24. As he spoke of the calamities of the last two and a half years, in this chapter he also said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. While the tribulation is described as a time never seen before and a time which will never be repeated, yet it is a time of the greatest evangelical complaint which 
never occurred before. And the greatest revival in history was not with Jonah, who did such a great job in bringing 600,000 people to a saving knowledge of God. It will be during that time. This, I want to tell you, is true grace. As all the nation rides against the believers, the believers at that time will respond by preaching the word to them. This is so much our God. See the strong contrast here. Even in the most evil times, God will do, will do the greatest thing. We read in Revelation 7, 9 to 10. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude with no one could number of all the nations, tribes, people, and tongues. This is John who sees all these people. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. Who are these people in heaven? There were so many that John could not count them. This is when someone over there came to him and says, in verse 14, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And what did they have in their hands? Palm branches. This is a symbol of the messianic times. Palm branches. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, you're going to see palm branches all over the temple, the temple of the millennium. They were there. This is why they brought palm branches when they saw Jesus coming into Jerusalem. They were there because they thought he was about to establish his kingdom. And we know that these 144,000 in Revelation 7, will be so successful in their evangelism, evangelism as if God was going to get loose 144,000 Pauls or 144,000 Isaiahs throughout the world, enough to give seven years of sleepless night to the Antichrist, who actually will not be able to touch them. These, along with the two witnesses in Revelation 11, will do, as, will do a tremendous work, so successful that we read in Re Revelation 11, when they kill, actually, the two witnesses, the whole world gave each other gifts. That gives you a sense, actually, of what would happen. It says in Revelation 11:10, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. Send gifts to one another? That shows you how powerful they would be. The world has not seen the power of the word yet. This is the good news of the tribulation times. While gloomy, right, the end time prophecies also include the millennium and also the eternal state itself. This is part of the end time prophecies. Amen? Let us bow our head in prayer. Now to us, from him who is and who was and who is to come, from Yeshua Mashiach, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now may God grant us such, as we may say, like King David, you are my hiding place. You protect me from all trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance so that your work is produced by faith. Your labor is prompted by love. We pray in his name. Amen and amen. May the Lord bless you.